following is a continuation in our series looking at the effects of sin on areas of our lives and how Jesus seeks to speak into them. We hope you enjoy. All right, so tonight we have the honor and privilege of having Austin McCann here to teach us. So if you will give him your undivided attention. Awesome. Thank you for being here. It is uh, a joy to be here. You know, it really is an honor to be here. Again, if everyone to come visit RUF throughout the fall, spring, please come. I know that we have it at the same time. If you're going to try, maybe try and work something out at some point where I switch and come here and then maybe he goes there and maybe we can have a Westminster. I don't know. We'll figure it out at some point. So just know that you have access to me. I'm here on Sundays and you'll see me and I'm available to y'all and uh, I want to get to know you. As I understand it, y'all have been walking through a series called Deformed and Reformed. Very cool name. Tree's always so good at creating really awesome titles. Uh, tonight we're looking, we're looking through lens of relationships, specifically how the fall deformed our relationships and how Jesus through his redemption reforms our relationships. Now, shocker, we're going to be in Genesis 3 again. I'm sure y'all spent a lot of time in Genesis 3. But we're going to be in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 21. It's up there. If you have a phone or a Bible, pull it out. I'm going to read it for us, okay? I'll be slow and clear. But let me read God's word for us, and then we'll, we'll get started, okay? This is God's infallible word. Let me read that for us in my prayer, okay? This is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 21, okay? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, and for wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed big leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, who, oh, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the fields, on your belly you shall go. and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, your pain you shall bring to your children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this unchanging. We thank you that you are a relational God. And Father, we are in relationship with you. We are in relationship with one another. 
you know us, you, you know us fully, you love us more than we could ever dare dream. Would you help us taste that and be reminded of that again tonight? Of that, not just inform us, but transform us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me begin by telling you a story of a friend of mine named Charles. Charles was a freshman, it was a spring semester of his uh, in college, and he'd been friends with this girl named Amy. Okay. And you know how this goes, right? Charles kept making sure that he's around Amy. There's kind of a buddy relationship there. He started to like her a little bit. And they ended up talking together at parties. They ended up kind of, he, he positioned himself. He found out, like, okay, where is she going to be? I want to be there. And then her friends just kind of always happened to hang out with Charles and his friends. And so finally it kind of came to the point this semester where they're all like, hey, let's all get to a movie together, okay? So Amy and, and Charles and all their friends ended up going to a movie together. And Charles was like, I got to sit by her, of course, right? So he positions himself, and he's like, I'm going to sit by her. And so he sits by her, and we're watching the movie, and he's, he's sweating profusely, right? He's, he's so nervous, because he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going for it. I'm going to hold her hand. And so he makes the move, right? And he puts his hand on Amy's hand, and she doesn't move it, right? Success. And so he's pumped. He's still sweating profusely. And then they lock fingers. And he's like, the thrill of thrills, right? He's pumped. He's excited. He loves the movie now. He doesn't even care what movie is on. And then, finally, he looks over and he leans over to Amy to whisper something to her. And he looks beside her. And Amy is also holding the hand of his best friend in the other seat. And, and he's just like, yeah, you can imagine. He's just completely deflated. And he's like, what in the world is happening? Now the movie is the worst movie he's ever seen in his life. And in the same two-hour window of watching this movie... He experiences nervousness and fear and exhilaration, exhilaration and joy and betrayal and rejection and anger all at the same time. Okay, and there it is, right? Their relationship summed up for you. Okay, and like that resonates with a lot of us. Maybe not the exact situation, but in the in the two-hour window of this guy's life, right? The reality of relationships is felt both joy and pain, and excitement and frustration. From you're my lover to I forgot that you. Right? All in one moment. So why do I start with that? Well, because we are created in the image of God, because he's a relational God, relationships are a place of joy, a place of happiness and fun, because we're designed for relationships. But at the same time, relationships are full of hurt and confusion and sorrow. And I really at Genesis 3 trying to get a sense of why relationships are so messy and can hurt so much. Why they're actually a tremendous source of joy and hope and a tremendous source of pain and disappointment. And Genesis 3 is actually the birthplace of every bit of relational dysfunction. Okay? So three things tonight. Okay, I'm going to be quick. All right, don't worry. This is not going to be exhaustive tonight. Three things. I'm going to talk about the mess of relationships. The lie that creates the mess, the result of the mess, and the healing of the mess. Okay? So the lie, the result, the healing. So first, the lie. You ask the question, what has gone wrong with us and our relationships in this world, right? And you take that question to the Bible, the Bible actually gives you a pretty, a very nuanced, but very clear answer as well. Okay, so according to the scriptures, when sin enters the world, everything breaks. And what happened? Right, well, we just read that here you have Adam and Eve who are made in God's image. They're living under full acceptance and delight of the God who made them. Everything is right. And then the serpent shows up, who is saved off of evil, and he starts talking to the woman. And look at what the serpent says in verse 1. He says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Right, it kind of sounds right, right? But there's a twist. This is actually why Satan throughout the entire Bible is known as the deceiver. He, he mixes truth and a lie together. It's confusing. 
Because back in chapter 2, God tells Adam, listen to the emphasis here. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat. Right? Do you hear the subtle twist there that Satan offers Eve? God has given you every tree in the garden, but this one. And Satan suddenly twists it. This is what Satan is saying. He's saying, all right, look, Eve, like, what's going on with God? Is he just withholding something from you? Satan is saying, look, don't focus on all that God has given you. Don't see how good he is. Dwell on the things that you can't have. And it actually works. <laughs> see, Satan knows, and this is what I want you to hear, okay? Satan knows that Adam and Eve will never rebel against God unless they begin to question his character. Hear that? Unless they question his goodness, his love for them. Satan injects a lie that God isn't good, that he isn't trustworthy. And once that is believed, then it, it changes everything. We know this, right? But this is true of us. Think about how you receive things. Okay, let's take a hug for example. Some of you are like, hugs, no, ew, gross, don't touch me, I don't want to touch, okay? But if you're sad, like really sad, have you ever been like truly sad in your life? Which is probably all of you in here. But a good friend offers a hug, you're usually going to receive it, right? But if you're sad and a random shady stranger offers you a hug, you're probably not going to receive that, because that's really weird, right? Why? Well, because with your friend, you know her character. Her intent is to comfort you. But with a shady stranger, you don't know their intent, and you also don't know their character, so that's really creepy. Right? The same thing, listen to this, the same thing may be offered, but the perceived character of the person offering it dictates everything. And see, Eve here begins to question the character of God, who's given her Adam and everything, the one who sustains them and loves them. She starts wondering, hmm, like, I don't know, does God really want what's best for me? Is God's character really good? Is he really loving and selfless? Maybe what God forbids is, is actually good for me. I don't know, maybe what he commands is actually a way of manipulating me into poverty and misery. And once Adam and Eve distort the character of God, rebellion is inevitable. Because the commands of God now seem ridiculous. Right? That's how we fall into legalism a lot of the times. Is we begin to believe the lie that the character of God behind the law, but we actually believe that's actually an attack against his character. So we think that his law is useless. So we distrust it. So God's law will never seem like it's for your own good if you distrust the character of God. Okay, so how does, here it is, okay, so how does questioning the character of God bleed into how we relate to one another? Well, just think of friendship, for example. Right, the jealousy and the bitterness that hurts relationship. How does that begin? Right, we compare ourselves to other people and their situations. We think, man, she's got the charm or uh, he has the connections or she has the boyfriend, or he has the sociable personality. And we say, man, everything falls in their way. Right? And this jealousy and bitterness actually begins to deform and de- deteriorate the relationship. If I had what she or he or she had, man, I'd just be okay. But I want you to see, do you sense what's behind that? This is what I want you to see, okay? That I want you to see that ultimately the fall severed our vertical relationship with God, which by consequence affects our horizontal relationship, always. Okay, so we say, even if you are not putting words to it, you're jealous of someone. This is what you're really saying. The Lord has been good to him or her, but he's not been good to me. The Lord has withheld something from what I need. It's impossible to love and care for someone when you're jealous of them. Just this. Because you, you won't be that. Right? Or, or think about another situation. Think about how we often ignore certain people or distance ourselves or overtly tear others down to fit into a friend group. Right? Because we believe that that's better than being alone. I have to belong to this group of people, or this ecosystem of people. In order for me to do that, I have to tear this other person down. Because if I don't, then I, then I won't be accepted and loved. I'll be alone. 
So we feel like, well, if, if I'm going to be alone, then if God's not going to help me here, then I've got to take matters in my own hand. So that means that I have to tear others down in order to be a part of this group. Or think about an unhealthy dating relationship, okay? So you, in this room, may have a friend that is an unhealthy relationship. You may have been in an unhealthy relationship at some point, right? But you just kind of know that this relationship's not going to end. It's not going to end because they really think this relationship is fulfillment in life. And it, what truly they don't understand sometimes is that it won't actually provide what they really need. So I sometimes we believe in, this is a very common college experience, i got to get a ring by spring, I have to. There's a social pressure, external pressure, that have to have a boyfriend or girlfriend in order for life to be fulfilled and to happen. So first, this is what I want you to see in this first point, okay? Promises that others are going to be a lot shorter. We must see that the lie that opened the door for sin to enter into the world and to deform our relationships is believing that God is not good and loving, doubting his character. And it's the same lie behind all of our sin and all of our relational dysfunction that you guys experience. God is not good. He's not trustworthy. So that's the lie of the mess in our relationships. Okay? So second, okay, this is a lot shorter, trust me. Okay, the result of sin. Okay, that's the lie. This is the result of sin deforming our relationships. Okay? Right, there's so much packed in this chapter because when sin enters the world, when the relationship with God breaks, everything else breaks. That's what we're talking about. But I want to zero on this downward spiral that happens to Adam and Eve, right? Which is shame and fear and hiding. It's what you see described in verse 7 here, right? This is the, the beginning of the downward spiral. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloths. Right? Chapter 2, when Adam got, when God creates Adam and Eve, they were both described as naked and unashamed. Right? Think about that picture. Okay? Adam and Eve were completely and utterly open and exposed in every way before God and before one another. And there was nothing there but the light, love, and freedom. Right? There's a freeness because they know that the Lord delights in us. But now, because sin and guilt, things aren't right. Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness. Their eyes are open. And for the first time, they think, oh no. Like something is really wrong with me. And from this point on, nakedness now actually becomes a picture, a metaphor for shame throughout the entire Bible. If you see nakedness throughout the Bible, it's always a metaphor connected to shame in some way. Uh, I had a friend, so like, what is shame? Right? I had a friend in junior high. Okay, he had, like, think about your Saturdays, okay? In junior high, like, this is true for your entire life. You just, you want your free Saturdays, right? You want to sleep until 10, 11, and then you just, you don't want to do anything else. You want to do any chores. But my friend, my friend's dad was pretty strict. He was like, you're getting up, you're going to mow the lawn. And he's like, okay. So he had to get up, mow the lawn on Saturday morning. He was exhausted. He's mowing the lawn, and... He's, you know, it's a push motor, so he's grabbing, you know, the, the, the blade propeller, and he's, he's pushing it, and something gets caught in the grass dispenser. So he's just tired, and he just kind of reaches under to, to remove the grass, and some more gets stuck, and sure enough, pulls his hand up with blood everywhere, okay? Sorry for this kid, handle blood, but um, there's blood everywhere, and he realizes, like, he has cut off a third of his finger, of his middle finger. And his first thought, like, after the pain started, it wasn't like, ow, that really hurts. It was actually, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid that I just did that. And so he, even when he went to the hospital and like got it and everything got, you know, they sent him back home and he's like, I'm drunk up, whatever. But like, he got sent back home and he, he just couldn't think. He was like, I'm going to have to go to school tomorrow and explain what happened. And people are going to ask me about this. I'm going to have to tell them how dumb I was. They're just going to laugh at me. So he wasn't even worried about the pain. He was just worried about the shame of having to tell people what happened. Right? Shame is the belief, the functioning reality that there is something about me, part of all of me, that if you were to see it, you would not want a relationship with me. That instead of wanting me, 
Actually, instead of wanting to connect with me, you would reject me and, and laugh at me instead. This is one of the major deforming relational effects of the fall, okay? Where there's guilt before God, there's shame before God and each other. And we all know that there's a gap between what I should be and who I actually am. And that result is always shame. So how does shame affect relationships with each other? Well, the truth is we, we do the exact same thing Adam and Eve We hide. Right? Instead of coming to the Lord naked in their shame and being with each other, they hide in the trees from God and cover themselves with big leaves. So here's the relational dysfunction, right? Because this is what we all do. We construct our own coverings to try and earn acceptance, to t- try and hide what we really are. So at, at risk of sounding cheesy tonight, I think the question becomes, like, what is your big leaf? Like, what's your cover? What's your methods of hiding? Right? If I were to guess, almost would... This is probably high behind spiritual activity, right? If I can just be in youth group all the time, I can use the right Christian jargon, if I can just keep up the appearance, maybe no one will really see the real me. No one will ask me the hard questions. Sure, I may confess, like, I have pride or something, which is acceptable in our circles, but no one will ever know what I really struggle with. So I hold up the Christian activity in the lingo. Look at these leaves, right? So people relate to the spiritual thing we do, but not the real you. Right, some of us hide by trying to perfect one area of our lives, right? The people that we want people to focus on. They, they, usually the things that we're good at. Right? The perfect fig leaf and not the real me. I'm going to show you about to get real vulnerable with Westminster Youth Group right here so, uh, during the summer on Wednesday night. But you know one of my worst nightmares as an REF campus minister is that I show up to REF large group and I don't have my sermon notes. Literally, I've woken up in the middle of the night throughout this past year with that fear. It's nightmare fear. Why? Because I doubt God's character. Thinking that without my sermon notes, then my students are going to think I'm a bad leader, they're going to think I'm a bad preacher, and they're just going to see the mess that I really Really. And some of you are actually working so hard to perfect your image as the smart one, or the funny one, or the social one, or the beautiful one, or maybe the one who never cracks, who's always fine, whatever it is, there's this knowledge that if I'm not who I should be, maybe I can control this one area of my life. Maybe I can wave that big leaf and, and it'll cover me and people love that me. Those are just a few examples of how we respond to this downward spiral of shame, fear, and hiding. And I'll let you all discuss that in your talkers and unpack that a little bit more. So, so the deforming of our relationships, okay? We're coming to our last point here. So deforming our relationships begins with the lie that questions or doubt God's character, okay? And the result of it is a downward spiral of shame, fear, and hiding. Let's now briefly consider the healing reform that Jesus brings our relationships, okay? So the reforming of our relationship in verses 15 through 21. Right, we see hints of this in our passage. You've probably covered this. Have y'all been doing this since the spring semester, Tree? Okay, y'all probably covered this already. But God comes after Adam and Eve. This is one of the most beautiful things, I think, about the beginning of the Bible, the story of the Bible. It really shocks me when I heard this in seminary, actually. I thought about it longer. But what we find is that God actually calls Adam and Eve back to himself. He continues to be good even though they just trust him. And he addresses their shame and, and calls them out of their hiding. He doesn't actually ignore it. Right? He says, who told you that you were naked? Right? He's pursuing them in their shame and fear, inviting them to come to him. And I want you to see this. Almost as soon as they come out of the hiding, as soon as they start talking, God does something. Right? He says something and he does something. Right? He makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. He promises that one day... The seed of Eve, some woman, born of a woman, will expose the lie of the serpent and crush him. And then God does 
he immediately covers them in verse 4. So he makes a promise and he does something about it. Right? He takes away their silly fig leaves and covers their nakedness with animal skins in verse 21, which means something had to die that day. Remember, God said that they would die if they ate the forbidden fruit, which there was a spiritual death, but they didn't physically die. Actually, an animal did on their behalf, and that death actually covered them. It really is beautiful because right after sin enters in the world, you see the Lord saying, I will make sure the serpent is crushed, and I will cover your shame. Here's what I think is amazing about the Bible that people forget. The story could have ended at Genesis 3, before Genesis 3 continued. The story of the Bible did not have to happen. Why? Because God didn't have to make that promise. God could have started over, and he had full right to do so. That's what I think is amazing about the grace that we see. Is that God actually intervenes. He says something. He pursues us. It's a revelation of his character. Which I think is beautiful. Yet over and over again in the Old Testament, God keeps pursuing his people in their shame, in their fear, and in their hiding. And the God the Son comes to this earth in the person of Jesus, Lord of a woman. And it's interesting because in Jesus' life and his ministry, as he goes about loving people and healing people and living perfectly, there's a growing reaction to him. He's mocked. He's rejected by the religious leaders of the day, and they laugh at him because he comes from such a shameful place like Nazareth. And he's arrested eventually, and he's falsely accused. And you can read this in Mark 15, but once in the religious court and once in the Roman court, he's mocked again, he's belittled, he's scorned, he's beaten, and then finally condemned. It's like the gospel writers want you to feel how much shame he's enduring. And then every gospel writer reports this fact that he's nailed to the cross completely naked. He's unable to cover himself. He's nailed, arms wide open for all to see why. What's going on? Because this is the one man, the God-man, who has nothing to be ashamed. Why is he bearing so much shame? Well, it must not be his shame. That's right. It's our shame. It's your shame. That if you trust in him, the guilt and the sin and the shame that we have is imputed to him. His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. So how does the serpent's lie of God's character get exposed? From the very beginning of the scripture all the way to Christ intervening and reforming us. When we look at the cross, God is so good that he suffered and died for me in my place. How is shame removed? Jesus does it. And it happens at the cross. There's Jesus substituting himself for me. So that I can be clean and righteous and seen and loved, naked and unashamed before God in Christ. Jesus takes what I deserve, condemnation and guilt and shame, and gives me what he deserves. Acceptance and love and righteousness. And it's through Christ's cruciform love that actually begins to reform our relationship to God and to one another. It believes over in sacrificial love, walking in truth and grace to one another, leaning into his cruciform love and forming the way that we relate to one another. Let me end with this, okay? There's a guy named David Ireland. He wrote a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. And he wrote all these letters because he was diagnosed with ALS, which is actually Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a really terrible disease. It eats away your body, deteriorates your body, and eventually you become dependent on someone else for life. He lost the ability to walk, and he knew that he was going to die eventually, that it was a fatal diagnosis. And so he was like, I'm going to write to my son letters. And part of the reason he wrote it is he wanted to tell his son about his wife, about his mother. And he describes in one of these scenes about his shower routine. This is when the disease is... is, uh, really pressing in on him as he's getting closer to the end of his life. And he describes how he hates the shower. Because what happens is his wife has to wheel him into the shower 
and he's helpless, and his wife, his, his head kind of leans to the right, and he goes through a lot of detail about what his wife, all the work that she has to do to bathe him and to clean him. And at one point, she puts him in the chair, and during this routine, she would always turn him, and he'd have to look in the mirror and see himself. And he said he just he hated it. Because he had to look at himself, and he was just disgusted with himself as he, as he looked at his concave chest and his deteriorating body, at his kind of lifeless drool that was falling from his chin. And he's telling the situation, he's writing it down to his son, he said this. He says, every time you need to know this, is that your mom will say, honey, would you just stop it? Would you just stop admiring yourself in that mirror? And then a few hours later, she'll put my hand in her lap and say, you know that you're so handsome, that you're the most handsome man that I know. You know that I love you, right? Forever. And he says that somehow, because of our shared experience, because of all that she's been through with me, I know that she really needs it. But this is what the healing work of Jesus offers you. Okay, we have a God who so loved us in our deformed state, in our helpless state, that he sent his son to transform us. And then when he looks at you, he delights in you. Because he sees you covered in Jesus' righteousness. That in Christ, you will find that he's not ashamed of you. And he says, I see you for who you are, and I love you, and I treasure you. I cover you in my forgiveness, in my perfection. The healing will not come from denial. It's not going to come from hiding. It only comes from again and again and again being fully exposed to Jesus' crucified love on your behalf. And letting his life look on you and take great delight in you. That's good news. It's only when we receive Christ's vertical cruciform love on our behalf will our relationships be reformed and walking in truth and grace of one another. What's in there? That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that we all in this room, that we trust in you. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Lord, we rest in Jesus' righteousness this evening. But we're confident in that, not because of anything that we've done, anything, any kind of righteousness that we've earned. We receive it only by faith that you've given to us as a gift. Lord, we love you. Would you help us? Would you help Westminster Youth Group to be a body of believers who love one another, who serve one another, who sacrificially move towards one another, who are quick to repent, who are quick to forgive one another, and say that, man, I really need Jesus. Lord, would this be a group who longs to know you more, who longs to know your word, who longs to be transformed, to be made more like you in the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an ear out for more audio upcoming from WYM.